This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. That intro music you just heard was created by Lauren Cutts with Andrea Villiers on The Gong. This episode features an interview with author Robbie Graham. We'll be talking about his 2015 book, Silver Screen Saucers, subtitled Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies. Now, early on in our talk together, I mentioned that Robbie spoke with Whitley. They did an interview together on Dreamland talking about his 2017 book, UFOs Reframing the Debate, and that information will be uh, linked in the show notes. Now, I apologize. The audio quality of my voice in this upcoming interview sounds a little bit hollow, um, I just got a new microphone, and I hadn't quite figured out all the settings. So uh, the good news is that Robbie sounds great. I sound pretty good. You probably won't notice it. I certainly notice it. But um, uh, Robbie, who talks a lot more than I in the in the interview, he sounds great. Our talk was recorded in February of 2019. Please enjoy. <laughs> Robbie, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. I'm really excited about this. Oh, me too. Thanks, Mike. Now, I read your book back in 2015 when it came out, and and I have a sense that you had one idea when you began the project, and that things changed. And and I could reading the book, I could sort of sense there was a journey of sorts, um, the process of writing. And looking deeper into the subject was a kind of journey, and and I'm and I'm wondering what that was like for you, the process of writing this book. Uh, well, it was a long journey. The book is the product of around a decade of research and around four years of actual writing. Um, it really began as a series of articles that I wrote for Fourteen Times magazine back in 2007, I think, looking at the history of Hollywood's engagement with the UFO topic. And this was a natural topic for me to explore because I'd been interested in UFOs since my childhood, and I'd read a good chunk of the essential uh, UFO literature by my late teens. And I'd say it was probably around that time that I began to study film and uh, first at college and then at a university, both at undergrad and postgraduate levels. And so eventually I decided that I should combine my interests in film and UFOs because really no one else, uh, as far as I was aware, was seriously writing about the interplay between UFOs and Hollywood at that time. And I felt that I had some real expertise to bring to the table. So anyway, in uh, about 2011, I started a blog called Silver Screen Sources, and that became fairly popular quite quickly and over the course of about four years it received around sort of two million visits and all the while i was planning on producing a book and eventually in uh, as you say 2015 silver screen sources was published but it was a long road and honestly by the time it was published i was suffering from ufo fatigue i think you could say and i, I took it all very very seriously too seriously um and i think you you know a lot of people suffer from that, but eventually I was able to take a big step back from it all and approach it from a slightly more detached uh, and healthier position. You know, it's a healthier mindset to have, I think, um, especially when it comes to a subject, a subject like um, UFOs, 
where, of course, very little can be stated. Here, let's, I just want a distinction here, and you make the distinction in the book. But, uh, so there's a distinction between UFO movies and space opera. And space opera, in my opinion, would be something like Star Trek or Star Wars. And so what's your definition of a UFO movie? So the definition that I use in my uh, – well, that I, I came up with in, in my Silver Screen Sources book is um, any movie, and this goes for TV shows as well, that taps directly into any aspect of UFO mythology or draws notable inspiration from ufological literature, incorporating into its plot references to frequently debated ufological phenomena, events, and locales, as well as specialized ufological locales such as Roswell or Area 51, or terminology such as Men in Black, etc. So a UFO movie need not be about UFOs per se, nor feature traditional ufological iconography like flying saucers or little grey aliens, but it will often devote a respectable amount of its running time to the dramatization of imagined human-alien interactions, usually, though not always, in the context of a first contact scenario in which the aliens assume the role of visitor or invader. In other words, the UFO movie typically is concerned with problems inherent from a human perspective in earthly encounters with alien life forms. So it's basically, you know, humanity's perspective on first contact with extraterrestrials or the problems inherent with contact with extraterrestrials. It needn't take place on Earth, but typically it takes place on Earth, which is why often space operas are removed from my definition. But you can have, for example, ufological themes that are explored in shows like Star Trek. So, for example, there are episodes of the Star Trek TV show which do tap into ufological mythology and debate. And so Excellent. there is some overlap Excellent. there. Now, um, in, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, I don't have the quote written down, but it's, I think you said something in the book, if you care about UFOs, you should care about UFO movies. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I can't remember the exact quote either, but it's something along the lines, you know, if you if you care about UFOs, you should care a great deal about UFO movies because they are the dominant uh, cultural force shaping our perceptions of the UFO phenomenon, for better or for worse. And I really emphasise the huge uh, psychological, psychic, cultural impact of entertainment media, but specifically cinema in shaping our perceptions, our understanding, or rather our misunderstanding of the world around us, and especially so when it comes to a phenomenon I like agree, UFOs. I agree, I yeah, agree. That's a perfect way to, because it is, I mean, we are, how to say it, you know, I, you know, sometimes I say, you know, like, I wonder how we used to dream before movies. Does that make sense? Do you mm -hmm. know the, what yeah. I'm saying? Because my dreams are very mm -hmm. cinematic, and in, in a culture without movies, which we don't have to turn the clock back very far, you know, 110 years or something. You know, how did people dream? And so I, I agree that movies have influenced the way our internal psyche frames reality. That's right. I think so. Um, movies are so powerful because they narrativize and contextualize our very complex non-narrative world and they help us make sense of the events and debates and processes that constitute a non-narrative world life rarely makes sense but movies usually do and we take comfort in that and therein lies the problem because of course movies aren't real life they are 
reflections of it, their snapshots of it, their simulations of it, which are skewed and distorted through the ideological framework of the people who've made them. And that's especially problematic when it comes to, as I said, topics like UFOs, which isn't officially acknowledged as being something that's legitimate or even real by by mainstream culture. Um, that's starting to change now. But historically, you know, UFOs have been considered the stuff of, of, uh, of fantasy. You know, I always talk about the power of cinema in terms of um, if I say to you, um, Titanic, what are the images that pop into your head, you know, in terms of people, faces? And most people, when I say that, uh, will, will very quickly talk about Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet even though there is an abundance of historical factual literature and photography and documentation on the actual Titanic itself and the tragedy itself, um, even though it's written into historical record, the cinematic simulation of that event, James Cameron's movie, has replaced the actual historical event in the popular consciousness, such as the power of cinema. And um, so if a movie can replace a historical event in the popular consciousness you know, when we're talking about an actual event that no one disputes happened, then it's especially problematic when you're talking about movies which are tapping into historical ufological discourse and debate where we're talking about a phenomenon which isn't officially recognized, but which is widely experienced, which is real for the people who experience it, but which isn't part of our consensus reality. And so when Hollywood creatives get a hold of that subject and they Hollywoodize it, blurs the boundaries very seriously between fact and fantasy on a subject which is already struggling to gain a foothold in, in consensus reality. And so I thought it's very important to try to unravel all of the processes which are involved in um, blurring those lines between fact and fantasy, looking at the cinematic medium itself, dissecting it, and then looking at how Hollywood has engaged over the years with real documented UFO events and how it's incorporated U UFO fact, shall we say, into Hollywood fiction and how those products then have been received by audiences, most of whom are not familiar or are not well-versed in UFO literature. And as I say, you know, I use this example quite frequently. The thing I'd say that probably triggered me to actually write this book was a conversation I had with a friend of mine years ago. We were having a cup of coffee and um, you know, my friend was not interested in UFOs. She had no ufological knowledge of which to speak. But I said to her, um, have you heard of Men in Black? And I was referring to the historical Men in Black phenomenon, which goes back to the late 1940s, where very well documented in multiple books and articles. And at one point, it was actually formally investigated by the FBI. This is a real phenomenon of uh, black clad mystery men visiting and intimidating UFO witnesses. And it goes back decades, as I say. So it's a real phenomenon, whatever it represents. And I asked her, have you, have you heard of Men in Black? She replied instantly, of course, everyone's seen Men in Black. So the entirety of the actual Men in Black phenomenon as recorded uh, over the years has been replaced by a Will Smith movie. And that would be true for most people. And that really hit me. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful thing. And so I, um, I tried to get yeah, to so, th it. so there's a few things going on here. So, I mean, you address a set of ideas in the book on how UFO movies get made or how they get influenced. And one thought is that the scriptwriters you know, simply have referenced UFO books. You know, they've simply, in essence, mined the available literature and used it as part of their creative process to get an idea onto the big screen. Um, 
like I say, you know, a great deal of Hollywood UFO movie content has been informed directly by fact-based ufological literature events and debates. In other words, Hollywood engages with this UFO law, this rich subculture in a parasitic fashion. And you have these industry creatives who aren't necessarily UFO buffs, but who have a passing interest in the subject and they recognize its dramatic potential. And they latch onto and they suck dry the rich veins of this, you know, 70-year-old subculture. Now, this perspective does contrast with the popular assumption that the UFO subculture feeds on and thrives as a result of images projected by um, the American entertainment industry, although this assumption is you know, well-founded in certain cases. But in, in my book, I encourage the reader to ask, how has so much dense ufological discourse, by its very nature, fringe and subcultural, so successfully borrowed its way into Hollywood's popular narratives. And, you know, many people in the UFO research community have over the years pointed to a Hollywood UFO conspiracy, uh, which has been designed to acclimate us to an alien reality or to, to subtly um, disinform us, I suppose, along the way. And this scenario sees the US government, the powers that be, exploit their close uh, historical relationship with Hollywood by systematically seeding inside UFO information into entertainment media and, you know, slowly bringing us around to the truth of, of the phenomenon, or at least the truth as, as officialdom wishes us to perceive it. Uh, but other people have suggested, of course, that, you know, Hollywood UFO movies are merely the result of a natural cultural process driven by, um, you know, generic trends and stemming from the, the obvious recognition that when it comes to the box office, aliens sell. Some of the most successful films of all time have been uh, about aliens and alien visitation. So my observation there is that the truth of the matter basically sort of lies somewhere in between both of those theories. Let's hold that thought, and we'll need to take a short break. Uh, for non-members, there's going to be a few commercials, but for members, we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Unseen. And we are here with Robbie Graham. We're talking about UFO movies. And when we took our break, Robbie had sort of made the distinction between two forms of UFO movies. One where the available UFO literature informs the Hollywood scriptwriter. And the other where, let's say, a nefarious plan on the part of the secret keepers is influencing what we're seeing in movies. Now, I will tell you, I've been to some UFO conferences and I've talked to people and they state it as if it is understood fact and everyone recognizes it. And they'll simply state out loud that the powers that be are controlling the UFO narrative through Hollywood. And I think that's a little strong, but I will say there's certainly examples of that in cinema. I think anyone who who has any understanding of how the cinema industry works, uh, both in the past and and in the present, uh, will recognise as quite absurd the notion that that uh, you know the powers that be control everything that Hollywood produces, and that they have the ability to to fashion a consistent narrative um, in a way that's received in a in a universal, uh, universally accepted way by by cinema audiences it's just not as simple as that um as i say, i think for the most part hollywood ufo products are the result of a natural cultural process and uh, they relate to, they relate to genre trends and uh, and yes to some extent about you know what's going on in the ufo community and uh, and subcultural currents but um but yeah there have been a number of quite compelling examples dating back right to the early 1950s where 
the US military and the CIA have attempted to monitor, to influence, to censor in some cases UFO themed products. And those kinds of actions have continued over the decades. Although as time has gone on, it's become harder to categorically prove some of those instances. But, you know, certainly right from the 1950s through to uh, the 1990s, there are a number of very clear cut cases of um, censorship. Uh, where the Pentagon, the US Pentagon in particular, has uh, been very concerned about the content of UFO-themed products, both factual and fictional, and has attempted to um, to alter content, sometimes quite successfully. And that's something different. That's actually tinkering with with a with an already existing script. Right. And then, so yeah, so then you have the the idea that, that Hollywood scripts are generated by the secret keepers. And there's very little to suggest. Well, okay, so there are a couple of productions that you can point to from the 1970s and 1980s where, say, you know, the US intelligence community has has its fingerprints on a couple of projects, which, you know, right from the early development stages. And those would be, for example, Robert Emmenegger's UFO's Past, Present and Future documentary from 1974 and UFO Cover-Up Live, which is a live TV special from 1988. Both of those had uh, the fingerprints of US Air Force intelligence and CIA on them as well. Um, But it's it's really tricky to to make a clear-cut fake case for, um, for content being created uh, by the national security apparatus when it comes to UFOs. It, it's, you know, typically how it works is, is that, um, Hollywood creates its own products. They create their own scripts. And then what will happen is that because the intelligence community does have its fingers quite uh, deeply rooted in, into the entertainment industry, it's not long before they will flag up any projects which are of either concern or of interest. Um, and they will try to get involved sometimes. Um, sometimes it's by offering military support or on-set advice, and they can sort of influence the project from within. Um, and that's typically how it's done. But, but it, you know, some people have suggested, for example, that Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977 was funded by, you know, the, the, the military or funded by the government. It, it, you know, it's not true. It's just not the case. You know, Hollywood doesn't need money from the government um hollywood is extraordinarily uh, lucrative and they uh, they churn out scripts left right and center and they can they put billions of dollars annually into their projects and so they don't need to be scrounging off the cia for money to to fund something what will happen is that things are generated typically within hollywood by people who are very creative and then uh, the military or intelligence agencies sometimes will see fit to get involved um, either during the early production process in the development stage or sometimes um, slightly later. Now, the one movie that comes to mind, and you cover it in the book, is Hangar 18 from 1980. And that movie, that that one is available, I think it's still available on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube. It's an incredibly cheesy, low-budget movie, but it's a strange little film. It is. Um Again, it's, it's, it's one where you have to sort of put your tinfoil hat on for, uh, to, to really get into the conspiratorial thinking surrounding this. It is, uh, it's an interesting one, definitely. It's probably Hollywood's first true UFO conspiracy movie that, that the first one to kind of, um, bring together all of the existing conspiracies surrounding UFOs, uh, that were swirling around the UFO subculture at the time and to sort of, to some extent, popularize those ideas. And it's interesting because it was made, it was produced by a studio called Sun Classic Pictures, which is a small film studio, but it was a Mormon run film studio. And a lot of the products that the 
Sun Classic pitches were putting out at that time, prior to that and, and after that, were all sort of very ideological and they were very closely tied into the interests of the people who were running that studio and they were reflective of Mormon beliefs. And, and let me interrupt, didn't Sun Classics, didn't they do the original Chariots of the Gods movie? Yeah, they did, yeah. And they also put out a lot of UFO and paranormal factual documentaries um, looking at psychic phenomena, UFOs, ancient astronauts. And they also put out um, a lot of documentaries about Jesus and, um, uh, you know, that were sort of reflective of Mormon ideologies. And so it was a, it was a very I- ideological studio, but also the owner of that studio at the time, a guy called Patrick Frawley, um, he was closely tied to... Um, Sorry, it was Schick Razors, actually, with the razor company that owned Sun Classic Pictures. And uh, that company was tied closely to the CIA. So I explore some of that in in in, uh, in articles that I've written. And uh, I, think I, I think I talk about it to some extent in the book. But there are actually better examples than that. But that one is interesting because it, it, it was released in 1980. And in essence, it tells, it's a reworking of the Roswell story. And not just the Roswell story as it was presented in the, the original book by Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore, but it presents it in the way that it has since emerged in, let's say, an X-Files culture where the secret keepers gained all kinds of information from this craft. Now the, uh, the film stars Darren McGavin from Kolshak, the night stalker. And he's, I guess he's a, somewhat of a ham bone in, in a lot of ways. And he really plays it to the hilt. But you know, so it tells the story of a crashed flying saucer retrieved by the government and all the nefarious uh, attempts to suppress and hide and obfuscate and influence the people who have any knowledge of this, which is, is, as you said, is right out of the UFO conspiracy textbook. Yeah. And so it was, it was quite far ahead of its time in that respect. As I say, you know, the, the, the UFO conspiracy narrative, as we understand it today and take for granted, didn't start to emerge in a big way until in, in popular culture outside of the UFO subculture um, until really the early, early 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s with uh, products like the X-Files, for example. But this film, as I say, it was, it was the early 1980s, Hangar 18. And um, so it was, it was about a decade ahead of its time in, in some of the ideas it was, it was presenting. Um, it, it's very hard, impossible, in fact, at this point to prove conclusively any um direct cia influence certainly you can prove cia links in, in terms of like corporate ownership but uh but there's nothing there that, that would you know prove a, a cia influence on a, on a script level but there are uh, much more interesting cases as i say that go back to the 1950s well here so let's take a step back because i want to just explore this a little bit more and actually i do want to play an audio clip which i'll play which is wonderful of darren mcgavin talking about the you know they've decoded the document on board the craft and i'll play that after our second break so that movie appeared in 1980 the same year as the original roswell book by bill moore and charles blitz now taking a half step back and kind of looking at the big timeline you get the sense that Someone basically said, oh, crap, we got to deflate this book or not deflate it. Let's put a better way to put it. We've got to paint the entire subject with the corniness of a ridiculous science fiction movie, if that makes sense. So they were, in essence, deflating it by making a cheesy, low budget feature film that was 
wonderful entertainment, but at the same time, it was pretty lowbrow. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, it, it, people have put the idea out there that you can discredit the entire UFO subject simply through 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 the through the cinematic medium you know the, the idea that hollywood itself is associated with forms of of uh of, of popular fantasy and so therefore you know whatever you depict through that lens is somehow tarnished as being a form of fantasy so so you know the idea is the more movies you make about ufos the less people believe that ufos are part of our uh, our ontological sort of reality and, and they associate them more with forms of creative fiction. So, so this, that theory has been put forward, but as I say, yeah, hangar 18 is a very, very interesting film and I'd recommend it to anyone who's seriously interested in the UFO subject. And, uh, my articles uh, about it are widely available online. And, uh, and I think I write about it to some extent in my book as well. You covered it thoroughly in the book, and and I'll play a little clip here shortly. But in I think it was right around that same time. I think it was like 1982 or so. Linda Moulton Howe visited an Air Force base. Yeah, I think it was 83. 83. Okay, and she met with Richard Doty, who's a very mysterious character in this whole in this whole business, and was handed a document that kind of laid out the uh, history of humanity. As, mm-hmm. as if it was all a product of alien intervention. That's right. So there's a scene in the movie where Darren McGavin is holding this document in his hand and they've decoded the hieroglyphics on the ship. And it sounds like the document that was handed to Linda Moulton Howe. Yeah, I'll play the clip right now and then we'll come back in a second. Okay. Kelso has deciphered the alien's language. This is a translation of a document found aboard the uh, spacecraft. Now, the translation is very rough and is incomplete, but if what we can read is true, and there's no reason to doubt that it isn't, then all of the previous information that we have had about the origin of mankind and the human race is absolutely false. What are you talking about, Harry? This is a report of a previous visit of the spacemen to Earth. This report speaks of the capture, the training, and the use of certain animals as slaves, both male and female. The slaves worshipped them as gods. Then what they referred to as animals were pre-humans? Yes. The report also speaks to the fact that the female slaves found it a great honor to be chosen to live with and to bear the offspring of the gods. Lord. You see, it's no coincidence that the spacemen are almost identical to us. It is not, Sarah, a case of two species developing, evolving independently of each other. Those ancient spacemen altered forever our evolution. They are the missing link. Do you know what you're saying? Yes. We, mankind, the human race, are their children. And that was the voice of Darren McGavin and the heavy-handed music from a somewhat corny science fiction movie from 1980. And that 
little bit, that little bit about the history of humanity is in a way at the core of the modern UFO mythology in a way that it wasn't back in 1980. So that was very predictive in a way, that little bit of uh, heavy handed drama, that bit of script writing there. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, you mentioned that the uh, documents were, were shown to Linda Moulton Howe in 1983 uh, by Richard Doty at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base in, uh, in New Mexico. And this was during the time where the Roswell narrative was really starting to emerge in the UFO subculture uh, as planted by, well, not the Roswell narrative so much as, as this, this broader narrative uh, relating to the idea that the US government has um, in its possession potentially numerous extraterrestrial vehicles and bodies and that it has you know a, a fairly good understanding of how this advanced technology works that it has reverse engineered some of this technology and that it potentially poses a grave threat um, and that the US government now because it has reverse engineered this technology is itself a, a potential threat to any of the powers in the world any of the potential terrestrial enemies and so you noted to me that you know we have this report of Linda Moulton Howe being shown a secret document by the Air Force in 1983 and the conclusion was that um, uh, the official then wanted the information out to the public you know and uh, three years later we have this movie um, uh, three years earlier rather we have this movie Hangar 18 um, floating out the exact same information in the guise of a, of a science fiction action film and so there are some parallels there how much you want to read into it is it depends on how conspiratorial you are really but um as i say i i don't like to speculate too much i mean i say that speculation is fine as long as you are clear in in what you're doing you know if, if you're speculating i think it's important that you say this is pure speculation there's nothing to prove anything here and and i think that's that's crucial when it comes to this movie and the, the, the theories that are surrounding it there's no there's no smoking gun here but certainly it's very interesting uh, in, in terms of the information that it presents and what was being discussed um, sort of in the bowels of the UFO community at the time and the disinformation campaign that was being waged through the UFO community at that time by Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Oh, this is part of the mythology of the UFO lore. And so I'm not speculating in that sense. I mean, it is... It is the reoccurring theme in among attendees at UFO conferences mm. uh, that doesn't quite make it true. So there's the distinction. We've reached the end of the free interview for non-members, the first half hour. But for members, this is just the halfway mark. We'll continue the interview in just a moment. We're back with The Unseen. I'm Mike Cleland, and I'm talking with Robbie Graham, and we are talking about Hollywood UFO movies. Just before the break, you hinted that there were some other examples beyond Hangar 18 where there was direct influence on films for a certain purpose, for a certain end purpose. And what, what would those other examples be? Well, the end purpose is very difficult to um, to decipher. But what we do know is in certain circumstances, there has been um, quite considerable uh, influence on the part of the CIA or the Department of Defense, for example, on factual UFO-themed productions and fictional as well. Um, so if you go back to 1951, um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is, of course, one of the most famous and one of the best UFO movies, uh, directed by Robert Wise, this is a film that, uh, in terms of its depiction of uh, 
UFOs and UFO technology and uh, alien beings seem to have a lot of parallels with what was being reported at the time uh, by UFO witnesses uh, and also by contactees as well. And so it seemed to be quite reflective of that. Now, of course, you could just say, well, they, you know, the, the, the screenwriters, uh, Edmund North, for example, who wrote the, the screenplay, was just reading UFO literature. There wasn't actually a lot of UFO literature to read at that point, don't forget. You know, this was 1951. There weren't many books that had been written about UFOs at that point, not decent ones anyway. But what we do know is that the, the screenwriter of that, uh, of that movie, Ed, Edmund H. North, was actually a professional propagandist during World War II. He was part of the, the documentary corps working as a propagandist for the U.S. military. Um, the producer of the film, Julian Blaustein, was employed in the same capacity as a propagandist during the Second World War also. And the director, Robert Wise, actually stated many years after the film had been released, he told the, the film director, Paul Davids, and Paul Davids is the writer and producer of the of the movie Roswell, which came out in 1994 starring Carl McLaughlin. Anyway, um, David's became good friends with Robert Wise in his later years and uh, was having lunch with him one time. And uh, Robert Wise related to David's that uh, during the production of the day, the earth stood still, he received many onset visits from scientists and engineers from Washington um, who would sort of drop him tidbits of information. You know, why don't you put this in there? Why don't you put that in there? Um, just sort of, tweaking what was on screen and so that was you know that's a, that's a very interesting um testimony from you know uh, an oscar-winning director robert wise he, he also directed the sound of music and west side story and the haunting uh great great craftsman one of the greatest craftsmen in hollywood history and um i agree i agree he is, i'm a huge robert wise fan and one of my favorite movies of all times is uh, the andromeda strain and the andromeda strain of course as well and so, um, so yeah, Robert Wise told Davids that, that uh, they received numerous onset visits from scientists and engineers from Washington who were very interested in what they were doing. So that, that's indicative, again, for in the early years of, uh, of people within positions of authority uh, and influence, keeping a close eye on what Hollywood was doing in terms of its representations of this um, sensitive subject. Uh, we can talk about examples, the censorship examples predating that as well. The first movie that came out in Hollywood about UFOs was called The Flying Saucer from 1950 and that film was monitored from the get-go by the air force because they were concerned that the uh about claims that were being made by the director a guy called um michael conrad who claimed that he had um, real footage of flying saucer that he was going to use in his film this panicked the air force they kept tabs on the film they visit they they sent officers to the um to the premiere of the movie they grilled the <laughs> the film director afterwards um so so yeah and, and there's just numerous I, I mean i document numerous examples throughout the 50s and 60s of where the air force in particular have been very interested and concerned about the content of ufo themed products in hollywood and they've attempted to censor those products sometimes successfully you know what's very interesting is that the day the earth stood still was an a picture mm -hmm. yeah it was you know, it, it holds up extremely well. And also um, The Thing or The Thing from Another World, the Howard Hawks production was also what I would consider, you know, was kind of a B movie in some ways, but it was an A picture given the subject matter. Yeah, it was a universal picture. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess it would be Earth versus Flying Saucers. Is that the one that was that was the one that had um, Donald Kehoe's name in the credits, correct? That's right, yeah, Donald Kehoe. So it was a 1956 movie called uh, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and it was loosely, very, very loosely based on, uh, were influenced by, inspired by uh, Kehoe's uh, book, 
I think it's flying saucers from another world. But Kehoe fought to have his name removed from the credits on that. The producers had approached him saying that they wanted to make a, a documentary, a sort of respectful documentary about the UFO subject inspired by his book. And um, he sort of reluctantly gave them permission to do that. And they went ahead and they, what they made was not, of course, uh, you know, a respectful documentary, but a trashy you know, flying saucer movie with rubbery aliens and, and flying saucers in it. And so Donald Kehoe's name was sort of tarnished by association with that. And he fought to have his name removed from the credits, but to no avail. And that was so that that, that movie was, you know, as silly as it sounds. I mean, for 1956, it was quite a it was quite a competent film. I think that in the aftermath of the thing being an A picture and the day the earth stood still being an A picture, there weren't many A pictures for another 20 years, really about the ufo content that's right yeah there you know throughout the 50s and 60s apart from the day the earth stood still and a handful of others like you say the thing from another world and you know a couple of others that there were very few if any um really quality ufo themed products that came out of hollywood most of them were really trashy b movies um which served to yeah completely you know ridicule the subject even more even more successfully than than the military were doing in a direct way through news media for example but um yeah it wasn't until probably the 70s that you started to have uh, probably with Spielberg's Close Encounters even. I mean, you had Robert Wise made The Andromeda Strain in 1971. Am I correct on that, 71? Um, I think it's very early on, which in essence was a, was an alien movie, even though the alien was a little, yeah. could only be seen under a microscope. Yeah, that's a, that that comes into my category of UFO movie in the sense that it, it, it's about first contact with extraterrestrials, albeit the extraterrestrials are microbial, but it still sees the devastating effect of first contact. That was a great movie, of course, 1971. I think it was 1971. But then it wasn't until 1977 that Spielberg made Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that really just completely transformed popular perception of UFOs and redefined Hollywood's relationship with aliens. Well, so let's take a, a half a step back in, in 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Right, okay. There are few films that are more, I mean, that, that film stands alone. It's almost written in a different language of cinema. And that is a story where aliens influence the evolution of humanity. And literally at the end, they have a floating bald fetus baby heading back to Earth. And that plays into the modern narrative of the... Oh, of the people who talk of hybrids and star children, that that movie was an extremely sophisticated UFO movie. Yeah, it was. And that's a movie also that touches on the theme of ancient astronauts, because, of course, it opens with the dawn of man. And uh, you see our early ancestors interacting with extraterrestrial technology, which jumpstarts them to the next stage of evolution. So that's very much about the ancient astronaut theory in that sense. And uh, of course, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick famously had their own UFO sighting during the production, prior to the production, rather, during the early stages. And um, they, obviously, the, what they saw was eventually explained as being sort of something prosaic, uh, I believe a satellite but um they they were certainly very seriously contemplating the idea that um that we may soon make actual contact with extraterrestrials in fact Stanley Kubrick was so concerned um about it that he felt that we might actually make contact with extraterrestrials before the release of his movie in 1968 and uh you know he thought that uh, well you know if we make contact in 1968 you know that then the movie's title is redundant 2001 because you know it's supposed to make contact in 2001 or whatever but so he was worried about that 
you know, obviously Stanley Kubrick's a genius and working on so many different levels. And there's really very little that's been made like 2001 before or since, you know, something so epic and so complex and so deeply and unashamedly philosophical. Uh, you know, Hollywood typically shies away from productions of that nature, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just watched it recently and I was, I've said, I don't know how many times I've seen that movie and it just, every time I see it, it simply slays me. <clears throat> okay. So here we have a, some aspects of the UFO movie. We have the, the idea that the scriptwriters are simply mining or being parasitic with the UFO literature picking little tidbits to drop into their script. That makes perfect sense. I know the X-Files supposedly had a, a library that the scriptwriters could use, and it was just bookshelves filled with uh, UFO books, and they would leaf through those to get ideas for the next script. Um, there's the more conspiratorial aspect with the examples we just gave, uh, specifically Hangar 18, and um, a little bit in Day the Earth Stood Still, it seems. Now, there's also the stranger one, where it seems that something is taking place on a deeper level, and the scriptwriters are, I guess, a way, they, they're tapping into sort of a creative netherworld. And these elusive ideas are somehow absorbed into their consciousness from who knows where. And these movies from, and I'll, in the, the example I want to give is The Stranger Within, which is a made for TV movie scripted by Richard Matheson. I think it was 1974. And anyone of a certain age will remember the ABC movie of the week. And the movies were an hour and a half long. And it was uh, Barbara Eden played a woman who was impregnated by aliens. And the script and the movie is so dry and adult and unnerving in a way that that is different than the sort of cheesy movies from the 1950s, let's say. And... She's wonderful in the movie. Uh, Barbara Eden, the, she's I Dream of Jeannie, and gives a very haunting performance. But it ties into so many modern aspects of the UFO literature. Mm. And it was based on a short story called Trespass, which I think was from 1954, yeah. when Richard Matheson was cranking out uh, short stories for Pulp Fiction magazines. And I've gone back and read that short story. Now, this is so... This movie sort of predicted so many elements of the modern abduction lore. And I don't think that um, Richard Matheson was an abductee or anything like that, but I think he was certainly tapping into something. And so that I was left astonished by that movie. I've, I've watched it a few times recently. Yeah, it, it is a, a really fascinating film. I, you know, I, in my book, I actually um, talked to you about that movie because, of course, you 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 wrote extensively on it before I'd even engaged with it, and I thought it was fascinating what you said about it in terms of um, in terms of what may have occurred there with how Matheson uh, seemed to tap into these ideas, and uh, you know, you, I think you said uh, that. Uh, hold on, I can get actually, actually a quote here. You you said, yeah, you said I, I'm convinced that there is a very real power in the creative process, and when abandoning or disciplining oneself to this kind of artistic inspiration something mysterious can unfold the artist can somehow tap into deeper truths the workaday routine of sitting in front of a typewriter or canvas or drawing board can be seen as a ritual act very much like the forgotten alchemist who sits before his candle matheson may have been on fire during those early years writing for pulp magazines and something weirdly predictive seems to have been manifested in his tight little story and uh, you know then i, I talk about um, of course jeff Kripal 
who has talked extensively about this this process to anticipate and manifest realities. And um, Jeff Kripal, of course, being the author of Mutants and Mystics. And in that book, um, Kripal says that there is something fundamentally mystical about writing. Words, stories and symbols can become real. And of course, Kripal means that literally, not figuratively. It's through this creative process that the imagination can become, as he says, empowered to make contact with what appears to be a real spiritual world, or at the very least, an entirely different order of mind. And, uh, you know, Kripal suggests that the abductions and other impossible, so-called impossible phenomena, are more usefully examined within the context of what he refers to as the imaginal, a superpowered version of the human imagination. And this is, uh, you know, rather than looking at things as absolute ontological truths to be proved or disproved by skeptics or believers, and um, you know, of course, millions of people throughout the world um, have experiences that current science tells us are impossible, but which are nonetheless vividly real for the people who experience them. And of course, you know, that demands some serious engagement. And of course, um, the imaginal provides a, a solid framework through which to engage with that idea. That's what cinema is, especially now that it's 2019. And we were like, I mean, the special effects from 50 years ago were pretty poor. And the special effects now are amazing. So I think that we're almost entering a new age of of what we can accomplish. We obviously have. We've entered a new age where what can be accomplished on screen is entirely believable visually. Where, you know, there's it's no longer little strings supporting flying saucers. It's much, much more sophisticated than that. And as I said before, like there's a there's a there's a sort of dream logic to cinema. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That it, it's tapping into us at this very deep level. Yeah, and it, and it works on a sort of a paradoxical level as well, because no matter what the subject, whatever it is depicting, cinema has the power, rather the effect, of simultaneously fictionalizing and actualizing its subject matter. And that's especially true with fantastical subject matters like UFOs and aliens, for example. And I think that um, between... The beginning of the modern era of UFOs, so 1947 and present day, UFOs have gone from being uh, a tangible national security concern, as evidenced in uh, government documentation going back to the 1940s, to increasingly impalpable cultural artifacts, I would say. And as real phenomena, they continue to flit in and out of our perception. And as I say, they profoundly affect individual lives, but they continue to elude you know, the acceptance of official culture. Meanwhile, they permeate our pop culture as iconographic entertainment products. So UFOs are real and they are unreal. And uh, and I think that demands some sort of serious unpacking, really. And so in order to do that, I engaged with the theoretical framework of hyper-reality. Uh, Spanish filmmaker Lou Bunuel said that uh, you, when you watch people leaving a movie theater... They look like they're hypnotized. Yeah. And this is going back to in the early days of cinema when people were seeing, you know, black and white or stage dramas basically brought to the screen. They leave the movie theater looking like they're hypnotized, which I think we enter a different mindset when we're when we're in a movie theater. We do. Yeah. And uh, it is hypnotic. And uh, that's, of course, one of the reasons why, for example, the CIA has recognized from a, a relatively early period, you know, the importance of harnessing the power of cinema in order to influence people on key 
political issues. And um, and there is a very well-documented history of CIA involvement in Hollywood beyond the UFO subject and into more broader genre pictures dating back to the early 1950s and beyond. Um, UFOs are just part of that. But, um, but yeah, in terms of trying to understand the effect of cinema on us, I, I look at this idea of hyper-reality, um, specifically as conceptualized by the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, and uh, the, the most popular definition of hyperreality, which is quite an abstract concept, is an inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. In other words, so to distinguish uh, a real historical event from, for example, a cinematic representation of that event, especially, as I say, in technologically advanced postmodern societies. So hyperreality is a condition in which what is real and what is fiction are seamlessly blended together so that there is no longer any clear distinction between where one ends and the other begins. And I think that certainly the UFO phenomenon has become uh, hyper-real in that sense. And, and the, the, the process of hyper-reality has been um, accelerated uh, and crystallized through the process of Hollywoodization, you know, Hollywood's engagement with this, with this subculture. So something that is hyper-real then is simultaneously real and unreal. It's fact and fantasy at the same time. Uh, so the key words in the definition I just used are technologically advanced societies. Uh, so technologies of reproduction, mechanical and digital, have ushered in this age of the hyper-real, where simulations of reality, i.e. movies and other products, uh, they threaten to dissolve the boundaries between fact and fantasy, between true and false, between real and imaginary. And so I contend that cinematic simulations of ufological history, UFO movies and TV shows, have all but consumed the history itself through the process of replication, just as humans were consumed and replicated as pod people in movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and John Carpenter's The Thing. So the, 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 there is now a, a facsimile, there's a, a simulation of the original that is free to morph into whatever it wants and is no longer necessarily representative of, uh, of the actual object that it was representing. If that makes if that makes any sense at all, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and there is a myth being created. We're witnessing the birth of a myth, you know, which has happened in the last fifty years. Let's say we are. Yeah, absolutely. As as Carl, yeah, as Carl Jung noted, uh, we are. You know, we are witnessing um, a myth in the making with with the UFO subject. And uh, and I've said many times, um, especially in the context of my um, last book. Um, uh, say my book it's a, a joint effort um that uh, there were 14 15 collaborators on that ufos reframing the debate you know uh, we we talk in that about the idea of, of ufology being a religion and, uh, and and i would certainly contend that ufology is a religion uh, a new age religion and uh it has very strong religious components and um it's unfortunate because it's a religion that is sprung up from something that does seem to be ontologically real and potentially profoundly important. But because there is so little that we can say conclusively about the phenomenon, uh, in the absence of evidence, we, we, we need belief. And so it invites belief and it invites all sorts of beliefs, which have sort of um, broken off into quasi religions um, over the years. Yeah, if you go to a UFO conference, it has the feel of a of a revival meeting in a tent somewhere where people are, you know, literally succumb to the ecstasies of the of the subject. And I mean, we can't look away. 
we have to look at this issue. And, and as you said at the opening here, if you care about UFOs, you have to care deeply about UFO movies. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because I think in order to understand and unravel how it is that we've come to perceive the UFO phenomenon, we have to understand and unravel how Hollywood has engaged with the phenomenon, because I think the two are inseparable now. Hey, it's the book came out in 2015. It's 2019 now. Mm-hmm. What's come out in the last four years that you had to, couldn't cover in the book? Anything that was worth noting as far as? Well, off the top of my head, it's, uh, a whole bunch of, of, uh, of UFO products have been released over the last several years, both uh, in terms of uh, documentaries and TV shows and also Hollywood movies. I mean, of course, most recently, the stuff that comes to mind is the new History Channel TV show project Blue Book, um, which is a sort of a, a dramatization and uh uh, which takes extreme artistic liberties, of course, with the um, boy. Woo, yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> with the uh, w- with the actual project Blue Book, which ran from nineteen fifty, God, what was it now, fifty three to sixty nine? Uh, no, God, even earlier than that. Um, but anyway, which 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 shut down officially in nineteen sixty nine, and of course, um, uh, Hynek, Jell and Hynek was um, was instrumental in, and uh, so so that. That new show now, of course, has brought a whole chapter of, of UFO history, of real UFO history, into the popular consciousness in a big, big way. But at the same time, it has blurred the lines between... But at the same time, it has, it's scrambled up in, in fantasy, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's typically, as I said, that's typically how Hollywood engages with, with the UFO phenomenon. People within the industry recognize there is great untapped uh, creative potential within ufo narratives and ufo lore and they they mine that they they they, you know they tap into it they read the books they watch the documentaries and they think this is great we can use this in our script you know i interviewed a guy called andy fickman who's a hollywood director a few years ago he directed the movie race to witch mountain for disney which is a remake of the 1975 movie escape to witch mountain this came out in whitley's in it right willie and ann are both in it yes Yeah, they have cameos along with a few other uh, high-profile UFO people. And um, this is a movie that taps very heavily into ufological literature and debate. And I remember watching it at the cinema and thinking, wow, the, the director or writer of this has really done their homework. Of course, it, it, you know, it's a ridiculous movie about you know two Nordic aliens who come to Earth and they're running around Las Vegas with the rock and, <laughs> and, um, and they're fighting bad guys and, you know, breaking out of secret bases and, and stuff like that. But the reason is, is, is that the guy, as I say, Andy Fickman, the guy who, who directed it and who was responsible for shaping its narrative as well. He was born and raised in Roswell, New Mexico, and he has been interested in UFOs for all of his life. And it's interesting there because he told me in my interview with him, he said, look, he wanted to make this movie in an effort partly to educate the public about a subject that he really cared about, which is UFOs. He wanted to bring this subject and these ideas to, to broader attention. But, you know, it occurs to me that, uh, that that's counterproductive because, you know, someone like Andy Fickman doesn't seem to recognize, nor do I think many people who make these movies don't seem to recognize the effect of the medium that they wield and the effect of something like that is not to, you know, the people aren't going to watch race to Witch mountain and walk out and think, wow, I know lots about UFOs. Now I'm going <laughs> to, I feel empowered to do more. They're going to think it's all stupid. They're going to walk away. And the, the, anything that's remotely factual in there is going to be tarnished by the fact that it's in a movie 
with the rock you know running around las vegas with aliens and stuff so they don't understand that the, the effect of these kind of movies is to push even further into the realms of fantasy the ufo subject and so um i think it's counterproductive um if you want to make uh, you know if you want to educate people about the ufo subject write a book deliver a lecture or yes make a documentary a good documentary but if you're going to couch these ideas in a fictional narrative you're not going to do your you know you're not going to do the subject any favors unless i mean but i you know i'm thinking of 2001 space odyssey which addresses the deepest issues in the most poetic way imaginable so that's an outlier in the well yes but that's a movie that's that's much more broadly about the nature of life intelligence the universe destiny um you know that's that's a far bigger movie than than just the notion of alien contact you know the alien contact in it is almost incidental and so so but but in terms of if if you're trying to sort of convey the importance of ufological history for example through a fictional movie then it's not going to work well, I'm, I'm not giving up hope, but I, I feel that it could, and I, I hope someday we see it. And, you know, I could probably think of some, some close calls in uh, the history of movies. But, um, hey, give us a little rundown of what's going on in, with your books these days. You did the book UFOs, Reframing the Debate, that came out uh, two years ago. And um, what's been going on since then? Uh, since then, I've been running a publishing imprint called August Night Books, which is an imprint of White Crow Books. And we are specializing in the publication of UFO literature, of uh, paranormal literature, Fortean, and general anomalistics. And so, yeah, we've, we've put out a few books over the past few months, and we'll be having more books published throughout this year and into the foreseeable future. So that's exciting, and it's great to have the opportunity to to give a platform for other writers and um yeah it's it's great it's very rewarding very hard work but it's it's great and also you're writing occasionally on movies quite often uh for mysterious universe which is a website that that has a a good collection of online essays yeah i write regularly for mysterious universe and um you know typically i write about ufos and hollywood on there so you know you can probably catch up with a lot of what i'm writing about on uh, through mysterious universe Hey, Robbie, thanks so much. This was a delight. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, yeah, and if you do want to uh, learn more about my work, uh, as I say, you can check out uh, Mysterious Universe, and I've got quite a lot of articles on there, and of course the book, Silver Screen Sources. Wonderful. All those will be linked in the show notes, as well as the link to your interview that you did with Whitley now two years ago for the Reframing the Debate book. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you. This is Mike, chiming in at the end. Uh, it was a delight to talk to Robbie. Now, I have actually met Robbie, and we've spent a little time in England together. And I was the passenger in his car on my very first occasion ever to be driven around in England. Uh, for those who have never done this, for those Americans who have never done this, driving on the wrong side of the road is quite a remarkable experience the very first time you do it. I got used to it a little bit by the end, but it was pretty hair-raising for me. I've also met his dog, Monty. Uh, that may not mean much to anyone unless they follow him on Facebook. And uh, Monty, his very cute little terrier, has achieved a, uh, a sort of infamy on that social network. Once again, this is Mike Cleland for The Unseen. And if you've made it this far, thank you so much.
Bye now.